just wanted to put a little disclaimer on the front of this episode here. Um, I say profit sharing several times throughout this episode, which is, it's actually revenue sharing, which is a difference. So I just wanted to kind of clear the record and um, perk your ears to that as you go through the episode. And I also thought I'd just say, you know, this, this book was The Cap by Joshua Mendelssohn. Um, it's a great book, highly recommend, and um, a very interesting read historically um, as it pertains to the NBA. And we have moved where we do this podcast to Playback TV, which is just coming out of beta, but it's an open stage format. So if you ever want to join the discussion or sit in the chat and listen to us live, it is... Um, the room is NBA Book Club on Playback TV, and you can find it on my socials and stuff like that. There's usually like a tab to the event or the room. Um, I hope you enjoy. It's great. I, again, I highly recommend the book, and uh, I think the pod turned out pretty good, too. Thanks for listening. I built this ginormous project i don't even know what the hell it is yet about moses malone because he's been in like three of the books that we've read yeah so i like pulled a bunch of like the weirdest most bizarre quotes from each book and just made little like slides and then i started like digging for like i found like footage from both aba teams he played on i found footage from the only thing i didn't find footage from was portland uh, but I found footage from Buffalo, footage from Houston, and then footage from Philly, obviously, which was the championship. But it is so interesting, like, through the lens of this book, because he always had such great contracts. Like, he was, like, in all of the books, he's, like, depicted as this, you know, kind of a dummy in a way, or at least, like, not a wordsmith, I guess. <laughs> But then he had his contracts were always like fantastic. I got the intense. Interesting. I got, I got that. I got, I got. I understand what you're talking about, but also I got the impression that uh, just maybe, maybe between the lines. But I thought it was kind of also in there as well is that he was just kind of playing dumb. You know, he was because because he thought it benefited him somehow. He wanted, he wanted, he wanted to get paid. He wanted to get money. He and yeah. they, all, they all do, but he wanted really to get a lot of money, and he did. Yeah, he was trying. Maybe it like helped him to, for some reason. I don't. I don't see how it helped him to be to play dumb. But maybe he thought it did. And well, certainly... definitely. So like having gone through, uh, re gone through it all. So the first book he was in was in Loose Balls, right? Yeah. So that was where he was coming from high school. He was the first player to ever be drafted to a pro team from high school. Mm-hmm. And the argument was, well, you can. You know, I mean, they were dirt poor and his mom was working like two jobs. She wasn't even supposed to be working because she had like kidney disease and which, you know, they were so poor. Like they said that they didn't even have grass in their front yard. Like that's how dirt poor they were. And um, and so they wrote all this weird stuff into um, his contract that like made sure that his mom would have housing like in his ABA contract. It's like Mary Malone will receive $5,000, you know, bonus for this. If this happens, and she'll get $500 a month. And like, so even to begin with, his whole goal was to like get out of poverty, make money, take care of his family, you know? Right. right. And uh, 
And he kept doing that. And then when he came into the NBA in the dispersal draft, he was like one of the top picks. So he automatically made a shit ton of money, mm-hmm. made like $300,000 a year up front, which was mm-hmm. like too much for Portland to handle. Um, you know, aside from all the other stuff that's in uh, breaks of the game. But it was actually, it was really interesting to look through. And then going back to look at his, the footage of him playing, he's just like, he he's still the leading offensive rebounder of the NBA all time. He's number one. He has like 6,200 and something, you know, uh, offensive rebounds. And that was how he just fed off them. He would get like two or three on one possession and then the score. Like, okay. so he would just get his own misses. Mm. He would just, if anyone else missed, he was there to grab it. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, he's like, I think a very underrated player, like probably one of the best rebounders the game has ever seen. And you don't, you don't hear about him that much, you know, maybe because it's old and, um, and part of his career was in the ABA and stuff, but yeah, I, I, he's interesting. Oh, look, is is Sienna? Like uh, sometimes this promotion isn't working for me. Who is that? That's one visitor. I don't think I can't click on them if they're just a visitor. I can't promote yeah. them to the stage, so. Yeah. All right, well, let's just start because um, I don't, my husband's back is still super jacked and I have to get my son up in, in an hour and a half or so, so I don't sure. have a ton of time. Um, but yeah, I read your thread too and I pinned it over here in the chat. Yeah, I saw that. Um. And I mean, it was just so good. Like, I don't know why he didn't, when I was reading it, I was like, why isn't this just um, uh, written, you know, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened in the right order. But Mm -hmm. then I kind of realized that it was giving him some leeway to tell the full story of each character as they like came into the, um the actual like cap you know profit sharing scenario um so like i just pulled out all these ones that i thought were really interesting and important like the nbpa the establishment i thought it was just really cool that he talked about bob Cousy, like basically launching like a letter writing campaign to start it and then larry fleischer obviously like working for the players association for free for however many years he did mm-hmm. um it was just like some dude like some friend of tommy Heinsohn's like hey i know this guy <laughs> yeah <laughs> crazy you know just uh fly by night kind of thing and then the robertson settlement obviously is like super important i tried to look it up but it was hard to like go through each thing but i think you know, generally we can agree that it established free agency. Um, and yeah. it got a little confusing. Like it all, part of it was that they were asking for um, for the ABA to stay a league so that there was like 
competitive salary. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I didn't exactly know how that part of it was settled because the ABA folded right as the Robertson, as Robertson was settled in, in okay. 1976. So, uh, Wait, uh, actually, recording? folded in 1979, yeah, right? Sorry. So anyways, yeah. So, um, and then obviously to 1983. So the main presidents were like Bob Cousy is kind of peripheral, Tommy Heinsohn peripheral, peripheral, Oscar Robertson, and then Bob Lanier, right? Was there another one in there? Do you know? Um, peripheral characters, you mean? Like, well, well like just, real no, just like presidents of the players. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. I don't think anyone was between Robertson and Lanier. I don't know. Maybe there was, but I don't know. Uh, maybe there was. I just can't remember. Maybe, I'm wondering. I put it maybe, in there somewhere. Let me see if I... Russell I, was back in the day. Russell was before, yeah. probably around Heinsohn's time as Russell, because he was, he was even prior to Robertson, I believe, as far as his time frame goes. And uh, there's some other guys that were, that were officers, but I'm not sure if anyone else was president. You're going to look it up right now? Uh, it does, I don't, maybe it doesn't list it right here. I could look it up on Wikipedia, though. Um, let's see if it does it share stuff when I look it up. Let's see. NBA Players Association. I'm pretty sure that's right. But I mean, so their whole like strategy of um, having the star players be the main yeah. representatives and the officers, I think was so interesting for so many reasons. But the fact that it, you know, protected those like lower level guys to a certain extent um, was obviously like the main, let's see if it has it here. Well, also, well, I mean, I'm not sure what you mean by that, but like, what I would say is that the, the 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 best players were protected because they were needed by the owners. You know, they were just by their nature, they were not going to be punished as much as uh, some yeah. random twelfth man would be punished. But he needs to be cut, you know. But um, they can't cut Oscar Robertson from whatever team he's on. You got to keep right. him on your team because he's the best player in the league or one of the best, you know. So, yeah. Uh, okay. uh... Overview in history. I'm on the MBP, MBP, MBPA website right now. Overview in history, but it may be too much. Oh, overview. is it in there? I'm on the um, on Wikipedia. Uh, Hold on. Come on. Sorry, that's a cat. <laughs> um, okay, Oscar Robertson and Cecilia Hineson. We know that. This is kind of all fancy. <laughs> 1964 All-Star Game. Um, ah, cool. This is really this is a cool, fancy little website they got going on here. Oh, yeah? Maybe I should go check it out. Let me see. And then the 70, 1970, let's see what happened here. Oscar Robertson suit. Paul Silas was president as well. Oh, Paul right. Okay. The, the bridge to get yeah. out there. I bet you he was the the other one, the only other one. I would imagine. And then in the '80s, we have it's kind of a janky navigation thing here, though. <laughs> but um, all right. Programs news. 
they don't really list like their presidents. And it's like no. a found all the way down. Junior Bridgman became president after Bob Lanier. Okay. I never, I never heard yeah. of him. Did you know him? Because you, you were watching NBA back then, I think, right? Or no. I that's still this is still like probably well, I mean, in nineteen eighty three I was thirteen. So Okay. Yeah. I mean, I I'm I probably watched a few games, you know, but it it wasn't yeah. um yeah, I mean, I was probably too young to fully appreciate the the magnitude <laughs> of yeah. what I was watching. Yeah, for sure, for this stuff, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really like you heard of him as a player. I never heard of him as a player even, you know. Junior Bridgman? So, yeah. yeah. Uh, he, he doesn't sound that familiar to me. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess, I mean, that was sort of post- I did look up, and I didn't put it, like, anywhere in a thread or anything like that, but I looked up because I was like, okay – I mean, I think a part of what was so fascinating about this book is just reading it in a time where labor rights are so unsettled too. like the, um, you know, the car car manufacturers being on strike, obviously, Mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. I listened to this podcast called Woke Bros, which they talk about, (laughs) they talk about a a lot of like economics kind of stuff and and politics and stuff like that. But they were saying that the um, Sean Fain, the the lead, um, the president of the union for, I I, can't, I don't want to call him the Teamsters, but whoever it is that's the car manufacturing union, he put out this huge statement, and he's saying, you know, the labor force of these of the big three make five percent of the gross profits. So yeah. I mean, that's a far cry from what the NBA ended up, players ended up with, right? At like 51% of gross profits. Like, so that was kind of mind boggling to me. And then you look also at the, um, you know, the SAG-AFTRA strike that just ended. Like they're, they're like, you know, it's like pennies to the CEOs and stuff who are like, what they're arguing for and asking for SAG after they settled, but it's like, you look at the settlement and it's still nowhere near labor making 50% of the gross profits. It's all going to the CEOs and then the gross profits are like split out, you know? So it was fascinating in that sense. And I, I know he talks a lot about how, like a normal person isn't going to have that much sympathy for some guy making a few million dollars, mm-hmm. not having good labor. But at the same time, I think it's like, and I mean, the guy who wrote this is just a lawyer. He's not a basketball lawyer. He's a labor rights lawyer. Right. And then, yeah. Hey. And I mean, looking through all of these, like I was looking through it last night too, I think. And they were saying Tommy Heinsohn, his dad was a union rep um, mm. and then he had like an insurance business on the side as well as being a player, which is so weird. But he, so he had, um, you know, sort of like legal experience with union rights and stuff like that. And then we learned David Stern's backstory and we learned Larry Fleischer's backstory as far as like, I think it was Larry Fleischer's family owned a deli and his dad was like a big union guy big labor guy and same with david stern so i mean i just it's just interesting that i think 
went through like a time of like as after the 80s after kind of like the reagan type stuff where it was like oh pull yourself up by your own bootstraps like you know unions are ripping you people off and like you know they're not they're not helping you do anything but it's like you go back to something like this and you see how much they can really win and be effective for people too on that same token i think he did a great job of like presenting baseball and football and their kind of labor disputes in like a parallel kind of timeline throughout the book and that were just really not as successful partially because they had to strike right and those strikes were like so unpopular uh, and it sounded like they were really messy too like i don't think the leadership was as focused or organized and so like especially the football one he made it sound like that sort of just devolved to a point where like everyone was pissed and then even when it got resolved everyone was still pissed you know what i mean mm. um so anyways i mean that was t pretty much a tangent there <laughs> for the whole labor well yeah i didn't know that, i didn't know that they made so little in the in sag and the uh the united auto workers union i didn't know that they made so little compared to, but i guess 50 percent of gross revenues is a lot yeah you figure like maybe yeah. if they had some profit, they would get that, or if they get some portion, less than fifty percent of gross revenues. That's a lot. Yeah, and, and I, back I, then it was even what, what was it in the book? It was back in the eighties. It was like fifty-three or fifty fifty-three at the end, right? Yeah, now it's more like fifty-fifty, I think. Yeah, they keep, they keep straining a little bit more. Not keep. I mean, it happens once in a while now, but um, once a maybe once a contract, but uh, well, still. and this new CBA adding in those weird those things that seemed really like. You're like, okay, they can, they can get like revenue from pot sales and like invest in marijuana companies and like betting. That seems like stupid at the time, but it's only stupid unless it's not stupid. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, right, right. And if it turns into something, like, I feel like in a lot of ways, like David Stern took a bet on cable, right? He was like, okay, we're not really like top of the heap on television. We're not like you know, doing what we think we should do. So we're going to like explore all these other markets. And then all of a sudden it was just like an explosion of income. Um, and everyone wins in this situation because everyone is reaping the benefits of, you know, expanded income. And uh, so anyways, I, I, mean, I think there was probably some bets that didn't pay off too along the road, you know, um, and we definitely know, like, I mean, by knowing the King's history, like the Kings were in Kansas City, but they were going back and forth from, I can't remember which city they were going back and forth from, but that's why they moved to Sacramento, because they couldn't get enough sponsors to sponsor the arenas that they were playing in. So they were driving, mm -hmm. they, were, they were playing half their home games at, in one city and half their home games in Kansas city and then um and it was a nightmare right and they still didn't have enough sponsorship it was like the aba sponsorship where you were like had like billboards on the side of the court and like who was doing ads on the court and all that stuff so so that was a, like a lot of the impetus for them to move you know or to sell because they weren't make they weren't they didn't have the gate receipts to cover their own butts basically i think they may have been although he didn't talk about them specifically at all 
and it was 1985 by the time they moved. I think they may have been one of the one of the crummy. Oh, yeah, <laughs> you know, I thought they were. I thought they were mentioned like in a list of list of teams, cities. You know, yeah, that could you be. know like like L.A. Clippers, uh, Houston. Uh, oh, there's another big one. Cleveland and like Kansas City. They might have been listed yeah. like a, just a list of city cities, you know. Yeah. Uh, Omaha, Nebraska. Kansas City, Missouri, and Omaha, Nebraska. Okay. I looked it up on ChatGPT. If it's right, it probably is. <laughs> was Omaha the other? City yeah, Omaha. Omaha. Oh wow. They played Kansas City dash Omaha Kings with their home games between the two cities, Kansas City, Missouri, and Omaha, Nebraska, which are right on top of each other. Omaha, Nebraska. Okay. Is on top of yeah, so they maybe were not. Maybe I think I think Nebraska's on top of, on top of Kansas, but I, I don't know that area, that country, that well. Yeah, that's interesting. That would yeah. suck though to to have like two homes. Yeah. Going back and forth. Yeah. Um. So okay. Um. And then the Robertson settlement is obviously like a huge deal that really promoted that idea that there should be like a competitive market that players should make more money. And then Fleischer was able to continue to use that market as like um, kind of a threat and like kind of comparing it, you know, to the salaries, even though it's funny because like the salaries in the ABA were a lot of them were like those weird dog off plan deferred money things and stuff. So it looked like a lot um, more than. Um, more than it actually was. Like they're like, oh yeah, he he got like a four hundred thousand uh, dollar, you know, contract, but like two hundred thousand dollars of it was going to pay out in ten years or whatever. Um, hey Chewy, how's it going? I invited you to the stage if you're interested, um, but if you want to just hang out, that's awesome too. So, and then the, 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 the other thing about the Robertson settlement was that he could use it as like when they were talking about the salary cap and he kept saying it violates the Robertson settlement. So yeah. I can't right. end, I can't end the Robertson settlement early because there's also, it was a settlement and there was this special master that was like mm. overseeing it. Right. So he's like, we can't end it early. And if we end the level of competition that player contracts can have, that violates the settlement. Right. So okay. he sort of had this like good. I thought he used it really well as like a bargaining tool of like, you guys need to give a little bit more to make it worth mm. it for us to end the settlement. Right. Oh, OK. I didn't uh, read that. Which but, is what um... ended up happening in the end is yeah. they ended it early because it was supposed to go to 1986 and they ended they ended it i think um around 1983. okay yeah so that was the reason because it, the, the the agreement uh limited salaries a little bit and robinson allowed for free agency allowed for just free free reign right it's yeah kind of what it was. yeah and I, I didn't i didn't actually you know pick up exactly I know I probably was in there, but I didn't pick up the particulars of what it all meant. I guess it, maybe Mendelssohn didn't want, didn't want to get into too much detail, but. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I, so I did find it online, the rock, but it's yeah. like, it's a lot of legal language. And, and like, what I was really looking for was like a bullet point yeah. list of like, here's what we got. And, and it, that wasn't really available. Um, but I know for sure it, get, it, like it, for the first time in any sport or any of the three big sports, it made free agency uh, a possibility after a certain amount of time with the team. So free agency hadn't existed before that. Um, and that was a part of the competitive salary makeup of it too, was that other teams could offer your stars um, better contracts, right? Um, and then it part of it was arguing that the ABA should remain like a, you know, a, a league as long as they could uh, because that offered again, like raised salaries for the players through competition. And mm. there was one other one, which I can't remember off the top of my head right now. Um, I think that some of it might've had to do, some of it was had to do with the pension stuff because the pension stuff was the stuff that they were fighting for since 1964, since that 1964 strike or threatened strike. Um, yeah which they didn't actually strike. Um, they, and then the owners like kept like not doing it. And like, they were like, oh yeah, we'll give you guys what you want. We'll meet with you. We'll do like collective bargaining. And they just didn't, which was why they sued them, which was why Oscar Robertson sued them mm -hmm. um, in 1970. And it took six years for it to settle which is kind of crazy that's i mean the amount of time that all this takes is kind of mind-boggling like so bob Cousy starts at 1954 they actually like ask for stuff in like 1957 and then larry fleischer comes in in 1961 and he's like a better advocate and is like giving them more kind of legal advice and like mm -hmm. Uh, pushing for like deadlines and that kind of thing and pushing them to ask for more shit. Like, don't just ask for pensions, you know, don't just ask for per diem. Like you're thinking too small, you know, and um, 1961, but it wasn't until 19. And then they did the, the, they threatened a strike in 1964 and in 1967 too, maybe. I don't know what happened in 1967, but um but the owners never lived up to it they're like oh yeah you guys can have pensions and we'll meet with you and we'll recognize larry fleischer as the ad you know the chief negotiator and they never did like they couldn't get their shit together enough to even meet with them yearly so they ended up suing them robertson settlement etc um i'm trying to think there was one other thing I looked up, but I can't remember what it was now. Hmm. I, w I got lost when I was talking about it. So, um, yeah, and then, I mean, the bargaining tactics and sticking points to me were like, were oh, I looked up how many times has the NBA actually actively been in a strike, right? Yeah. And there's one time. It was in 2020, uh, the night after James Blake was shot and the players refused to go on the court and they refused to play. 
And um, that is the only time that there has not been, that play has been stopped on a basketball court because players refuse to play. What happened in 98, 99 for the first year? Those were lockouts. So those were the owners said, we're not letting you come back. That was when owners wouldn't agree. So that okay. I looked that up too, because I was like, what's the difference between a strike and a lockout then? Because I knew that there had been, I think there's officially been three lockouts, two in the 90s. The one that was really long in the 90s that let the Kings build up their good team. <laughs> and that Jerry said was like a benefit because they like got to, you know, get all these extra pieces and like figure right. out, figure more stuff out. Um and then one in 2011. Okay, yeah. So, so then, so Larry Fleischer, I mean, maybe, maybe, yeah, I mean, so the bargaining tactic, tactics and sticking points. So the, they obviously use strikes as, as a bargaining tactic, right? But also, I think Larry Fleischer was really brilliant at using it as like a deadline, you know, like, because, like it seemed like, especially the owners are, are really depicted here, and I believe his story that they seem like loose cannons. A lot of them that they're just like, you know. I think in in breaks of the game too, he sort of talks about them like they have these egos because they're like captains of business and they're millionaires, and you know they think they're really great at everything, and. But then it kind of turns out that they're kind of not in some cases, or at least they don't know anything about basketball, you know? And I mean, obviously Ted Stepien was like the worst of the worst Mm -hmm. where he just Mm -hmm. blew it on every level, you know? And he was probably an owner. Like I I wanted to go and do the math on how long he was actually an owner for, but it was like two years or something or three years. So, and then in that time, he like squandered all their draft picks um you know overspent their checkbook like he went bankrupt and had to sell his business to get out of the ownership of the team like when he sold the team he had to sell his business to the same people mm-hmm. um to like just get out of owning the team so anyways um uh, it seems like Larry Fleischer was very much that was his his line right the owners are the ones that are tanking the NBA. Right, you have right. no money. You're going broke. It's because your owners suck. Um, and because they don't know what they're doing and because they're spending money on weird shit, which they were in some cases. Um, and so I think that was a really good one. And then using the strikes as like, if if we don't get something done by this time, we'll strike. And that worked every single time. Right. I mean, right. So if you're if if it's true that the only strike was in 2020, there was nothing the owners could have done. That was a so, social justice strike. That was just sure. a protest of conditions in the country. It was like a um, what do you call? It's it just like a symbolic uh, moment in history, right? Not a strike over labor per se. Mm-hmm. Um, so. And then the all-star game, I think, is the central part of, like, where all this business is done. Was really interesting. Like, how it's the only place where they all come together, where all the players are, where everybody gets to meet in person. Because there was obviously, like, no Zoom and not really. Like, you had to 
go find like a payphone if you wanted to call people. Um, so that was interesting. Um, and then I'm trying to think. Yeah, and we, now we have Las Vegas Summer League where like where all the players. I don't know. If, I don't know if all the players go to All Star Weekend these days. I think they kind of. I don't know if it's relevant to today, actually. But I'm curious if there's still a players association meeting because not all the players are reps, right? There's still right. only there's a rep from each team. Right. So the same way that Bob Cousy set it up, but then there's also officers on top of that. So like mm -hmm. I think Harrison Barnes is like the treasurer or the VP or something like that. So I'm curious if there's a players association meeting over the all-star break um you know at all-star and i don't know i don't know that one way or another i know that there's a players associate there's several players association practice facilities because uh there's one in spain where davion went this summer and where chemezi went last summer where namias was last summer where you can mm -hmm. just go and like hang out for a couple weeks and like do open runs with whoever's there and like i think there's like classes that they do for like the younger players and so that's really cool um but that's like outside of the framework of that's just like for the players but not not the nba if that makes sense yeah. Um, and then, so, I mean, the main, the main protagonists of the story are David Stern, Larry O'Brien and Larry Fleischer, right? Larry O'Brien, I mean, like you said, I think you said it in a, in a message is like, yeah, okay, I'm like halfway into this book and I have no idea why it's the Larry O'Brien trophy. Like why did, right, right. and like he was just kind of a douche in a lot of ways <laughs> i mean he was like a politician yeah and they brought him in he was married to make deals and um he kind of he stormed out of that meeting he didn't seem like a much of a deal maker he seemed like he was kind of a he, they said that david Sturm was the real like the de facto commissioner even when the, yeah when the, when the negotiation started already even though he was just the whatever he was the executive council whatever he was you know but um but so, but Sarah Bob was just kind of hanging out and doing yeah. you know, the, you know, the it opening. Like by the end of the story, though, everybody kind of gave Larry O'Brien credit yeah. for the progress that had been made under his tenure, kind of, even though it was potentially David Stern who was doing the, the work, right? Um, like David Stern seems like he was the negotiator, and Larry O'Brien yeah. was like the CEO, like who shows up and you know, he didn't have the legal uh, training and et cetera. Um, and I didn't credit. <laughs> yeah, I wonder, I, I wonder, I kind of want to look up right now and see, let's see, why is the Larry O'Brien trophy? after who greatly improved in attendance numbers introduced the salary cap and oversaw the introduction of the three-point line yeah as a result I, of it's weird, it's weird they renamed it out to him right like soon after he left i figured that you name it after the 
commissioner, you know, in honor of them after the yeah. left. Like, well, it seemed like yeah. there was lots of good vibes, like even okay. yeah. after this happened, right? And I think mm -hmm. partially because like you could see what had happened in baseball, you could see what had happened in football. And for both of those sports, I think, especially baseball with the, the strikes and the lockouts, although it was probably later on, I think they lost a lot of their appeal over the years as like one of the top sports, right? By, by having these long, prolonged uh, battles that stopped play. But it, and it sounds like the football um, strike that happened was viewed in a similar way by the fans where it was like, dude, what are these guys fighting over? Like they're millionaires, you know, yeah. and it just wasn't vocalized well or like presented to the fan base in a way that made any sense whatsoever um, or to the players. It sounds like the players were really super bitter and annoyed with it. And they didn't achieve nearly what the, the NBA did. They, right. they, they, the NBA was the first to the cap, the first to the salary minimum, the first, to free agency. Um, so they've been massively progressive in terms of labor rights throughout. Yeah. I mean, basically since Larry Fleischer got involved, right? And they have revenue sharing between the between the players and the owners and among them owners, which is important. Yeah. People like Ted Stepien and Donald Sterling, they got to yeah. help out the people that aren't as good at being owners so, so that they can pay their players. Yeah. I guess is what that point point of that was. Where <laughs> it's like you got to help these guys out. You got to you got to share because, you know, you got you got uh what's his name um, the guy from L.A. Uh, Doctor oh, Jerry uh, Buss. Buss. Jerry Buss. Yeah. You know, taking names and kicking ass and. and I other... guess like, I mean that was kind of like after like thinking about this book for a couple of days, I was like, okay, it's like super great. It seems super cool. It seems like the players won a lot of shit in these negotiations. But did it actually work? Because the way that the luxury tax is now, where you have like the Warriors and the Clippers, and I, you see, I mean, I'm trying, I don't think, I, I don't know what the Bucks salary looks like now. I don't know what the Celtics salary looks like now. But you have these owners that are willing to go so far above uh, yeah. that cap. And like it, it seems in a way like what the Bucks did with Dame and what the Celtics did with Drew is almost an effort to get in before the new CBA starts, right? Because mm -hmm. the new CBA starts punishing and limiting, making it more of a hard cap, right? It's still not a hard cap by any stretch of the imagination, but it adds a lot of rules about what you can, um, you know, how the, how, what, like, it, can you use the MLE? Can you use um the vet minimum can't because they start taking stuff away the further you go into the tax right but that mm -hmm. doesn't start until next year so this year i think teams are still trying to load up as much as they can and then they still have some of like the larry bird stuff or some of the exemptions and exceptions they can still take advantage of that's very complicated like i so you brought that up because about the players though, right? Like are the players losing out because of these things? Cause that's an owner to owner thing. Those things are put in place because owners like Vivek were like, Hey, we can't have Steve Ballmer paying 250 million for his players, yeah. you know? So we I need think to 
yeah i mean that's a good like i think larry fleischer would be like oh no it's great like you know because like okay. it, it says at one point like he thought that the salary cap was a temporary measure right mm -hmm. and he thought it would like go away and it would like serve its purpose and people people would get rid of it but because his interest was that players could make unlimited amounts of money he mm -hmm. just agreed to the salary cap to get the profit sharing just to get the revenue to get to, that was that was he 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 agreed to revenue sharing if they could get and how did that work actually I'm I'm, I'm confusing myself just well now. so the owners so the owners were were broke we're going under cap. we're not going to make it we have to like somehow put a cap on what we're paying players like the reason okay. is we're paying yeah. guys too much right so I mean Larry Fleischer's response from my understanding of this book was. The reason why you're going broke is because your owners suck. But, yeah. you know, 10 not out of because of the players. player salaries. Yeah, not because the player salaries are too much, but because you're like spending thousands of dollars on weird popcorn or whatever, you know, whatever Ted Stepien was doing for like a halftime show. And, um, and um, you shouldn't punish the players for owners being bad, right? players are like this integral part of the product so they they should be sharing in the profit of the product you want a salary cap we want profit sharing mm -hmm. so where's the line mm -hmm. right where can okay. we meet um yeah. and that's so that's why they're tied together that's why the salary cap is like a uh also a percentage of the um the gross profit right mm -hmm. so like they can adjust it uh or change it well they do it with every cba they'll ch they'll change it but they can also um sh like add a little bit to each salary or whatever or like how the percentages go up every year uh based on how the cap goes up based on the income right yeah um so anyways uh yeah i don't i mean and then you know the owners were so like those so i would say david stern larry fleischer and larry o'brien were kind of the heroes of the story along with the players along with you know i mean i would even put bob cousy and paul silas and oscar robertson all of these players that worked like so tirelessly bob lanier mm -hmm. um, they were when they were saying like bob lanier was like flying in and flying out and like missing parts of games and like yeah so hard to get this done and there was like other nba stars that were a part of the negotiations too uh those were like the heroes for sure and then to me the villains were the owners okay like, yeah <laughs> uh, i mean i think david stern you know you could say that like larry o'brien and david stern were kind of villains in a sense that they were promoting the interests of the owners but they seem to be doing it in a more fair way like especially in the context of like where they talk about how Angelo Drossos comes in, I don't know how to say his name, Drusos comes right. in and it like blows the entire thing up. And he's like, no, we're not doing that. We don't accept that. And like gets all, you know, foments all the other owners mm -hmm. to like, to like stop the negotiations when they're like almost done. And the Seattle Supersonics owner says that, you know, 
We'll have you. We'll have you done. You'll be forgotten in two weeks. We have replacement players, and that's what that's what yeah. his reaction was to the that strike. Was, yeah, proposed that, strike. Proposed right. Strike. That was really interesting. That that whole like sort of rumination on how do you replace, like how do you bring in scab players, and what does uh-huh. that look like, and how they would have set it up for, like they wouldn't have done it that year, but the next year if the strike went into it, they would have like replaced entire teams with scab. That would be a lot. I thought about that too, as it relates to the coronavirus, like when they were having to pull up guys from the G League um, just to play the games every night, right? And yeah. in like 2021. Um, but it was a lot easier because there was a G League, <laughs> which there wasn't. Right. You know, at this time it would have been whatever random like ABA broke down dude and a plumber, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then the parallel labor fights, I've already talked about the NFL and the MLB were going through these same kind of growing pains, but they didn't have the same kind of success in their negotiations. And I don't think the public perception of the fights that they were having was as positive, right? I think fans were like, dude, you know, what are you talking about? I don't know. And I don't know enough about either of their structures at this point i know they have probably have salary caps and stuff like that right no mlb Um, does not i'm pretty sure oh they They, don't wow that's why they have such crazy contracts in there yeah uh, that's why new york is able to do really well (laughs) because they've had a rich owner for and a rich uh descendant of the owner that's interesting yeah and they're able just to buy good good rosters at the very least you know yeah good, uh, good, good good squads crazy yeah yeah. um and then so yeah the nba was the first to free agency the first to a salary cap and the first to profit sharing and they may be the only in some of those still um a free agency was huge because like for that competitive edge of the market of being able to um you know lure someone away from another team make teams compete for players and then the story he told, like I said, I had gone on this like crazy deep dive on Moses Malone and the story that he told about Moses, I have some slides, so I'll show them in a minute about Moses's whole contract deal was just insane. Like where he was like trying, trying so hard to get like a contract for like two to three years and then George Malouf dies and he, he can't, so Philly you know, swoops in, grabs him as a free agent, writes a really complicated contract that a new owner, Houston had like a new owner who was like, what? Like, I can't even figure this out, much let's match it. And so Philly got Moses and then they won a championship that year. (laughs) Um, And Moses won a Trans Am for being the finals MVP. Um, (laughs) So funny. Uh, so yeah. in the, the final deal where, like, he lists out all the stuff that the, the Players Association won. And the, the owner seemed to, like, pitch it as a win as well. But really, it was a laundry list of everything Larry Fleischer wanted. It was the profit sharing. Uh, it was the salary floor. So not just having a cap, but a floor, I think, was really uh, pivotal. Um and then all the different revenue streams that they got to uh, dip their hand into was like it, crazy, 
like I mean, from gate receipts to, you know, the cable contracts, et cetera, et cetera. And then all the different, and he went through, like, I didn't notate them, but they had all like the different exceptions, which, um, you know, so I think like we talked about the Larry O'Brien trophy, but there's also the Stepien rule, which mm-hmm. is basically <laughs> Ted Stepien came in and traded everyone, all of his picks and then signed a bunch of free agents for way too much money. And then he was like shit out of luck and like begged the league to give him more draft picks. So that's why the Stepien rule exists to protect owners from themselves <laughs> from being <laughs> dumbasses. And then um, like the Larry, Larry bird rights were part of the original, uh, you know, deal uh, because there was all these exceptions. They were like, I can't remember what the rookie one they were looking at, was but there was all these things that would have like been outside of the mm-hmm. parameters of the deal they were writing so they wrote exceptions for those um and that was pretty much the whole book is there anything that i missed that i'm thinking i should bring up your well let's see here let me look at, let me look at my uh yeah as you said my my thing really you didn't miss uh well let me look real quick uh can I share? Well, I like how the owners finally just share their financial statements in 1983. Oh, yeah. You know, because, and then the good quote from Stern, at some point there was no reason to be fighting about what the facts were on page 219. Yeah. You know? And uh, I just wonder why I wonder why they just took so long and they complained about their bad how crazy bad they were doing. If that was true, because you know the, the players they would Fleischer and his assistant wouldn't wouldn't receive the statements and they were like, Well, we don't believe you then. If they're not gonna give us the statements, we don't believe you. And so they yeah. finally gave them, Stern knew that they were some were struggling, so they finally just give them the statements. So they did. It's like should have done that. 10 years ago, you know, but, um, but well, I he, think, and also like, just, I think he, he makes the point that it's like, there was like an unprecedented level of openness between the NBA and the players association, right? which is probably like what it takes to really make a lot of these deals. I don't know if it's continued that way with the, you know, between, uh, both organizations but it definitely seems like the nba has relatively good relations between each you know the nba and the players association right um again like comparatively to like nfl and um and then um mlb you mentioned it, but I think that the 1964 All-Star Game should have opened up the book. Uh, that could have been like a preface, yeah. a forward, or whatever you want to call it, introduction to the book would be that game. Because that was like really um, exciting and tense. And are they going to – are they going to – the first televised All-Star Game for the NBA, are they going to – the players, the All-Stars, the main All-Stars, the real All-Stars, are they going to say – no, we're not walking out there. They're all in uniform. It's like they go back and forth. The the commissioners coming in, cussing them out. Like the new the new commissioners coming in and cussing them out. It's like yeah, it was like it was <laughs> they don't want to talk to Fleischer because he's just he's just some dude. He's just to them. He's just some guy. But he's like the owners the the players trust him by now. They trust him a lot more in '83, I'm sure. But they trust yeah. him 
he was helping them out for a couple of years, but at that point already. So I guess that's one thing I did miss too, is like that the NBA kept saying, Oh, well, Larry Fleischer, he's an agent. Like, so this is, you know, he has like this unfair advantage. And in the end, when they went and like talked to the players about how they trusted him, it was an unfair advantage. And it really worked in his favor of like, yeah, he got me this great deal. And he's trying to get the NBA to give us a, everyone a gr- another great deal, you know. And uh, the other, the, and the one other thing that stands out to me about Larry Fleischer is when they talk about him sort of moving out of like the domestic market uh, of being an agent for American players and becoming the agent for like it named every great international player that was even available. It was Vlade, um, Domas's dad, Arvidas, and there was one other one. And he was like in talks with those guys to become their agents. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was looking at like new ways to bring like new blood and into the NBA. And um, what a tragedy that he he died so young, even though he wasn't, he had retired from the Players Association, but Right. Um, yeah, I mean, he seems like a very much an unsung hero of labor relations, right? I mean, bigger yeah. than just the NBA, but I mean, I would imagine that this is something that is that is potentially taught in legal, you know, classes about labor relations. Um, I would mm-hmm. teach it if I was teaching a labor relations class, anyways. <laughs> My Moses Malone stuff. Um, so he'd spent years trying to get a, an extension uh, before he became a free agent in the 81-82 seasons. Negotiations between Lee Fentress Malone's agent and Rockets owner George Malouf began in 1980, years before his contract was up. Moses never wanted to be a free agent in the first place, Fentress said. He asked me to start negotiations back in 1980 so that it would be cleared up before his contract expired, he was very happy in Houston. And then the most valuable commodity on the market that off season was size. Um, let's see if I can like, that, these, these have like way too many words on them. Then on November 29, 1980, right in the middle of negotiations over a new deal for Moses, Maloof suddenly died of a heart attack. Gavin said that George's last words were how many points <laughs> <did> Moses score? <laughs> I hope that was weren't his last words. Um, so, and then this the so this was the contract that Philly offered Moses, and that Houston's new owner Thomas was like, "What the fuck?" So there was like a ton of like poison pills and all these different mm-hmm. stuff. In it. So, first Malone's offer sheet was all cash, no deferred money. So we know that Moses was in the ABA and he was in the ABA in like 1974 through 1976. And that was a big deal in the ABA at that time was that the players were figuring out that like all of those contracts that were deferring money were not really worth what they said they were worth. Right. Mm-hmm. So he must have told me 10 times, no furred, no furred. Cat said of his negotiations with Malone. More importantly, making Malone's contract all cash 
made it difficult for a new owner like Thomas to swallow. In addition, Malone's contract with the Sixers was complicated, extremely complicated. It provided for a number of poison pill provisions that were designed to be difficult for the Rockets to match, built around attendance and other players. Um, and then it just then he goes on to so within a week Moses would be named. That's his Trans Am, the picture. Yeah. <laughs> he finished the season as the highest paid player in the history of NBA. Um, and to top it off, a Pontiac Trans Am for being the MVP of the finals when he was presented with a car. Uh, Moses was asked whether he had expected a championship when he was traded to the Sixers. When I signed that offer sheet, he said, and I didn't put in here, but there was another, um, another, so he's the originator of the faux, faux, faux meme as well. Cause they asked him, Moses, how many games is it going to take for you guys to win the, the, uh, playoffs? And he said, faux, faux, faux. And, uh, and they were like, ha ha, it's so funny. And they won it in four, five, four. So on their championship rings, it says on the side of them, faux, five, faux. <laughs> <laughs> That's part of like the engraving. Wow. Yeah. Didn't know that. Uh, so, anyways, I thought that was just a cool, interesting. Um, and then, and then Philly had to trade him. Like three years later, they traded him because um, it wasn't really working out. And it's like considered to be one of the darkest days in Philly, Philadelphia sports histories when they traded Moses Malone. Also, he played with Julius Irving in the ABA. So he played on a team with Julius Irving in the ABA and then got to play with him in the NBA as well, which is kind of amazing when you think about the point of that dispersal draft was to like spread out the ABA, but nobody thought the ABA guys were all that good. I mean, he his happened on a loophole with the heart attack and all that stuff, but, mm -hmm. um, and just the fact that like the ABA guys turned out to be like the biggest stars of the NBA uh, post, you know, post uh, dispersal, I guess. That's all I got, I think. Okay. This stuff. That didn't take too long. Um, yeah, I think you cover most of what I want to talk about, or all what I want to talk about. Um, Let me see if I can get back to you. Yeah, I'm sure I missed some stuff. I mean, I, I loved, like I said, like some of my favorite part was definitely um the um uh just the the nerdiness and geekiness of the contract negotiations was was really interesting i mean the labor negotiations was the most interesting yeah. part for sure um and and i did think like the the um tangents that he went on for the ted stepian jerry bus Donald Sterling tangents. The Donald Sterling one is like, dude, this guy sucked so bad for so long. And it took like 16 years or something to get right. him out of the league. So it's not like, it's like you can know that you have a super shitty owner and still not be, be able to 
to boot him. But that was the other thing too. At the very end, he says the salary floor was what forced Ted Stepien and one other owner out of the league entirely because they just couldn't afford the they couldn't afford to pay their players that much, right? right. So they were like, "I'm done. I'm out." Um, which is pretty was fascinating as well. Right. Yeah, that's that's all I know. I think. Okay. But let's do let's do chasing perfection. Okay, that sounds good. I wish I could see what how long it is. It was seven well, hours thirty six minutes to listen to. Oh, oh, I wanted to say this is officially our twelfth book that we've read. So we oh, have cool. read we've read, been reading for longer than a year because we read one twice and split yeah. one up and stuff like that, but. So we've officially read a year's worth of books. So mm -hmm. thank you. Yeah. I've really enjoyed it. I yeah, thanks like for putting it on. Yeah. yeah. I feel like it's increased my knowledge. Yeah, about, definitely. For sure. Me too. And it's fun. Yeah. It's fun to have something to read. It's gotten me into reading other stuff too. Uh, okay. Sure. November 5th. So I'm going to end this event.